appreciate people continuing into this series. Um, this is the third sutta that we're examining, and we'll stay with this one for a couple of talks and a couple of discussions. Um, and I'd like to spend a little time on this one. This one can be a little daunting. Uh, and so I think uh, it needs some explanation, and it needs some chewable chunks. It, this sutta is called the Bahia Sutta, uh, Udana 1.10. And uh, so what is this, uh, this Bahia? Bahia is a, um, was a, um, a mendicant, uh, uh, and he wore a bark cloth. He was called Bahia of the Bark Cloth. I don't know what that meant, except that he probably wore some kind of robe made out of bark. Anyway, he was thought of um, as a holy man and was given great homage and reverence, and to the point where he started uh, to inflate his ego and thought, well, I must be fully uh, awake. Uh, no sooner had he thought that thought than a spirit, some astral entity, came to him and said, uh, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had those spirits. <laughs> but they seem to have congregated back 2,500 years ago. In any case, uh, he was what's called chastened, chastened and uh, felt humbled. And he thought, well, who is then? And the spirit god said, there is a monk uh, several kilometers from where you are, the Buddha. Uh, and go seek his teaching. And the man was so um, on fire with, and hungry that it said he traveled the whole journey of this long distance in a single day and was very um, anxious to get the Buddha's teaching, arrived very early in the morning just as the Buddha was going on alms round. And Bahia went up to the Buddha and said, please, Buddha, give me the essence of your teaching. And the Buddha, because he was gathering up his robes and setting off to do alms round, said, um, not now, I'm busy. And a second time, Bahia asked, requested, and Buddha turned him down. And then the third time, which seems to be the magic number in these suttas, and the Buddha said, okay, I'll give you the, the teaching. And this is what he said. Now, Bahia was, after he heard these words, was fully enlightened. So listen carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Then Bahia, this, thus shall you train yourself. In the seen, let there be only the seen. In the heard, let there be only the heard. In the sensed, let there be only the sensed. In the cognized, let there be only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there is only the seen in the seen, only the heard in the heard, only the sensed in the sensed, only the cognized in the cognized, then Bahia, you will not be reckoned by it. When you are not reckoned by it, you will not be in it. When you are not in it, you will be neither here nor there nor between the two. This, then, is the end of suffering. And as these... Wait a minute, first let me check in and see if... <laughs> <laughs> so as these uh, suttas go, very shortly after that, uh, Bahia was rammed by a cow and died. And the Buddha said, treat this man as a holy man, for he was awakened. 
by that simple passage. So most of us um, aren't quite as fortunate. Um, so we still have um, some investigation to do into that paragraph. But it's a paragraph that really holds the essence of the Buddha's teaching and also extend, is an extension of the sutta that we examined prior to this called the Honeyball Sutta and about Papancha or the proliferation of thinking, 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 thinking. This then says and talks about just this, just what is here, just what is happening right now without adding anything at all to it. Now, what does that mean, not adding anything at all to it? And how is this the essence of the Buddhist teaching? So that requires some examination and some, some investigation. If you were to take out a photo from your family album and look at the photo, you would bring an enormous amount to that photo. If you know, knew the person, if you remembered the circumstances in which the picture was taken, if you remembered what was going on inside of yourself, you would look at the photo and bring that whole knowledge and set of circumstances to the photo. It wouldn't be Aunt Hilda. It would be Aunt Hilda in regards to everything that was going on inside of you and everything that that picture contained that referenced you at all. In fact, if you just looked at the photo, what the Buddha is saying is that you don't see Anne Hilda at all. You just see shape and color. And yet if you take Anne Hilda and the pictures and you extend those pictures out into a movie, which are just still pictures laced together, you have a moving, walking Anne Hilda and yourself as well throughout life. Yet every single one of those photos taken as a snapshot are complete in and of themselves prior to any of the film that has gone before it or any film that has yet to occur. And what we constantly do when we are caught in the photograph of our life right here and now in this moment is that we reference, constantly reference the past and all of the relationships we've had and all the experience we've had in relationship to this moment and where we think this moment is then going to move in the future. And all of that is contained in our being in this moment here and now. And so we never hold something for what it is. We constantly lace the subtleties of time and memory and experience and recognition into this here and now. So nothing is ever what it is. It's what we make it, how much we bring to it, just like the photograph. I just got back from a week of teaching at Spirit Rock. And we phased in the breakage of silence, phased in conversation at the end of that week so that people would get used to conversing and speaking. And then we would ring the bell and expect those people to come back in to the meditation 
letting their, uh, their conversations go and coming back into the meditation. Well, that's not what happened on this retreat, and from my experience, it's not what happens on most retreats. People want to stay out and talk. People want to stay out and converse. They don't want to come back into the silence. Why? Because the silence, the retreat, emptied us out. Took away a lot of the lineage of our thinking, the referencing of our past and future, and made it very much about this moment and this moment only. And that can be very unsettling. In fact, a yogi on that retreat came up to me in an interview and said, I think I'm going crazy. I don't feel as full of myself as I feel I should, as I experience myself to be. And as we explored that problem, what he was meaning in this particular sense is that he wasn't carrying the worries and proliferations of thought that have held him in place. And he was sensing himself to be something that was not as four-dimensional as he thought himself to be in his regular life. In fact, when this group of people left the silence and went out to conversing, the conversations got themselves back into their lives again. They related to the person and the people from their past, all about their problems, their worries, their worries came back in, their problems came back in, and they could expound endlessly. And that was kind of a fascination for each of the people because it validated. There was a sense of validation in that fullness. And the silence doesn't offer that validation. Going back on retreat doesn't offer that sense of self-validation. What happens is the fuller we make the world with our worries and our disagreements and our resistances and our struggles and our conflicts and all the things that live, we live our life, the fuller we make the world, the fuller we make ourselves. Those two containers fill directly proportional to one another. And the emptier we make the self-container, the looser the world becomes. And so when we're on a silent retreat, the world begets, it's like taking cotton and kind of stretching it out so you can start seeing between the fibers. And conversation, if it's done without attention, is balling the cotton back up so that it feels solid and full. And so people didn't want to come back into the meditation because they wanted to carry that sense of fullness. Well, that, here we are. This is it. This is the fullness we carry. Now, the Buddhist teaching is how to empty. The Buddhist teaching saying this fullness of you is the false one. It's the assumptions we have made, but it's not the right one. And he's pointing to an empty class. And some of us are using the teaching to make the glass fuller. And you can do that by just claiming self-reference to your, oh, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a, a yama meditation. 
practitioner, yeah. I study at Sims. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're looking at some of the suttas. <laughs> right? So the very teaching which is meant to empty the glass, depending upon how we use it, can fill it back up. Now, we give basic instructions that are the instructions for emptying the glass. For instance, we say when you sit, just bring, just hold whatever it is that's going on inside of you. Just permit whatever is there to be there. Don't add any judgment, condemnation, anything to it. Just acknowledge it. Just let the scene be what is seen. Just let the herd be what is heard, right? You hear a sound. I wonder where that plane is going. Oh, I bet it's coming from LA. It sounds like it. No. What is the ear hearing? What is the eye seeing? Just look around for a second and see what the eye is seeing. The last reference, oh, that's Jim, who is Where's he been? I haven't seen him for three, you know. That's one way to see. Or you can let your eyes be soft and see just what the eye sees. And when you do that, in the moment you're actually able to do that, you'll feel inside a great relief or less of a burden of meanness, of meanness. And as soon as I'm in struggle with somebody or in conflict or I recognize and pigeonhole everyone, fix them, reference them, then I too carry on that carnage inwardly. Fixing myself, referencing myself. Never mind that with any insight whatsoever, the ground is unfixable. Never mind that the ground is in constant movement that it can't for an instant be stationary, we fix ourselves anyway. And we fix ourselves from the general movement of our internal world. We say, oh, I'm an angry person. I'm a jealous person. I'm envious. I've got so much envy. Because occasionally the conditions or the circumstances of our life bring forth that feeling tone and because we are struggling with that feeling tone, be whatever it is, a fear, I'm a coward, or anger, or whatever, we then make self-reference to it as it being me. And the fixation of ourselves on something that is not always in us, by definition, cannot be. And we just think it is, it's in our subconscious, we just aren't, accessing it. No. No. It's not there. It's the conditions that arise that allow it to be there. You don't hold it as a permanent thing any more than the sky can be fixed with its cloud pattern. And yet we try to. We try to constantly reference everything. 
We feel like gourmet cooks. We just need to get the moment exactly right. And how do we get the moment exactly right? We keep referencing other moments that were better than this one and trying to bring those ingredients into this stew, into this moment. And our need to reference through memory never allows us to ever accommodate or relax to this moment because it's constantly adjusting, like a gourmet cook, the taste of the stew to fit our particular palate. And so these basic instructions are given. Just allow, just be present, just be with. Just be with. Just accept things the way they are. And at some moments, we're actually rather relaxed, and we can just almost get there, almost, before we get off and running again. And what happens is that when we're almost there, the mind throws up a secondary defense. I'm bored. This is boring. Following my breath is boring. So even when the moment really doesn't have any quality of antagonism to it, our mind senses that we're losing shape here a little. So it throws up, oh, I'm, I've got a restlessness, some perturbability, or boredom. And then the moment isn't good enough again. And as long as we keep the moment depleted, diminished, then we're through that diminishment, we reference back out again. Our minds go back out and reference, oh, I want some more excitement in this. I'd like it to be a little, you know, maybe I'll try to meditate and listen to music at the same time. I know the tricks of the trade. <laughs> and so the escape routes, the mind creates escape routes because that's what its intentionality is. What, it's tr what it attempts to do is to hold the structure in place. Never mind that the world cannot be frozen, cannot be maintained. Never mind. That's, the mind doesn't, it just passes, and I just won't pay attention to that. It looks for the strategies of maintenance. Sometimes people come up and people often say to me that inside they don't feel like they've changed at all. I can see some aging on their body. They know their body is getting older, but inside they still feel 20. That's the mind fastening, holding. 
If we really acknowledge what the mind is doing at any moment, it's never the same. It's never the same. Now, awareness doesn't change, right? But the contents of the mind certainly shift. I mean, I'm not the same person I was even a moment ago because different conditions are bringing forth different internal experiences. And this need to constantly reference and to hold ourselves fast is on a collision course with reality that's on the move. And when reality, which inevitably will be our experience at some point, meets our imagination, which is our referencing for something better than what reality is bringing forth, the collision of those two is our personal conflict and struggle. And now because reality is reality and our imagination is just fiction, and how we cast reality to be forever, and how reality itself is only for a moment, these two are going to be in struggle with one another constantly. And the way we're constantly experiencing disappointment. In fact, we are constantly grieving. You can sometimes see it in a, an exaggerated way when someone is dying. Obviously. They're having to give up everything and acknowledge that all of their references isn't going, aren't going to continue into the future for very long. And therefore, all the plans, their hopes, their expectations, their anticipations, everything, their desires, are meeting an endpoint. And there are a series of emotional hits that the psyche takes when the reality falls, when the imagination falls down into the reality. And that's called denial, anger, bargaining, despair. In fact, it's hard for me to think of a single episode of any of those emotions, anger, despair, or permutations like irritability or annoyance that aren't the aspect of grief in which our anticipations are not being met in this moment and our imagination is falling in onto reality. All aspects that I think can think of, perhaps you can think of some, of anger, irritation, frustration, are really the grief of not having life lived up to our expectations. And so you begin to see that we're constantly grieving the loss of our assured references to things. Denial, well, this just isn't, I just won't put up with this. I refuse to allow this to happen. I refuse this. I refuse this. This is just not going to, this just won't be. 
anger. I'm sick and tired of this. Constant knee pain. Every time I sit down, back hurts. Tired of this. Can't keep going on like this. Bargaining. The next time I'll change. I know what I'll do. Next time I'll change. I'll make it despair. Oh, I just better get used to it. This is going to be like this my whole life. And all of the different permutations where our referencing, our fixations, have been crushed by the truth of just what is seen, just what is heard, just this, just this. But surely we can control all this. I mean, when the temperature is, I get up and I change the thermostat. And when my knee hurts, I move, move in my sitting. And when my daughter isn't home, I take corrective action. And I, could, I, have, a, yeah, I have a sense of control. Do we? And the moment it happens, see, now, now I'm going to box us in. So I'm going, to bring us, I'm going to bring us in a little bit here. Because the Buddha is so uncompromising in this sutta, I think we should follow suit. In fact, in this sutta, the Buddha doesn't say, just be with what is bahia, because that's even too much. He says that the seen and the heard is only what is. That there's no one to be with it. In the seen, there's only what is seen. In the heard, there's only what is heard. Not somebody being with what is heard. That's the degree of relinquishment we have to go through in order not to suffer. not carry ourselves into it, not try to be allowing of everything. Okay, I'll just let my, I'll allow my pain. Yeah, okay, my pain, I'll just allow it. Okay, now I've got a safe reference back a little bit, but I'm, okay, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it. It's right here. But a total relinquishment, a total surrender of any outside perspective, just a total letting be, a total where there isn't any positionality outside seeing in at all. In fact, we think of ourselves as sort of on some kind of cruise, I think, where we're, the boat is life moving through the wake. And we're on sort of, you know, kind of looking over, checking out the ocean and seeing the conditions and feeling the wind occasionally, getting busy on the boat. But the person, you and I, are not separate away from the events of life. It seems as if we are, because we are referencing our past and asserting 
that past on the present. That's why it seems as if, it appears as if there's somebody back here sort of watching life as life is sort of happening to us and we're trying to get it. But we don't feel really like it's coming up through us. It doesn't feel like life is one moment, is one movement. It's like we're outside trying to grasp like life like a barrel of beer or a chocolate cake. That sense of me is also arising in the moment. In the cognized, there's only what is cognized. In the, the thoughts, the sound, the moment is arising. This moment is what it is. Now let me be a little clear on that. It's not as if we could think another thought than the one we are thinking. It is not as if we could have a different need than the one that is hurting. In this moment, our sense of control comes not in this moment, it comes in the future. Okay, I've got to do something about my sore knee. When, I, when the sitting's over, I'll get up and take an aspirin or something. Or I'll change it right. Okay, I'll just. Ch- but in the moment, the moment that the pain is there, the moment that I sense myself here, the moment, control is always in the future. It's always, I see my predicament and now I've got to alter it. So it's another reference to the present. And I don't want to go too fast on that because I know, I don't, especially I know that there are some new people here. We're just taking off chunks of this thing. And if some of the chunks stick in your throat, <coughs> cough them back up <laughs> and let it go. Okay? It's, that's not important that we get all the, the homework is much more important. But I'm just trying to show us now the depth of this. We take ourselves to be outside, kind of critically looking in. But the sense of me is also arising with, this, with all the other aspects of the moment simultaneously. It's not as if there could be another moment in this one. It's not as if the mind tries to create another moment, but it only does it in its imagination, not in reality. This is what we're, this is where it is. This is the only thing that can happen. So we see that our need to control, how do we control? Well, we exert fears and desires. And then lose ourselves because the imagination separates itself out from the moment. It fears like there's two of us, me, the imaginative one, and the moment reality and we always feel a little distance and a little outside of things because what we're referencing what we believe ourselves to be is our imaginative thoughts about this thing if we relinquish we let go of our imaginative thoughts this whole thing 
comes together. So can this moment be attended to without qualifiers? Listen, Bahia. This is the essence of the teaching. Listen, Mary, Robert, Tim, Jim, Rodney. This is the essence. Nothing besides this. There's nowhere to go. This teaching is about this. This teaching isn't to decorate the tree. It's not to make us more comfortable, bring a recliner into the moment with a warm fire. It's not to adjust it so that I can lie down in it and finally rest and be soothed. It's to end separation. It's to end distance. It's to end referencing. So that the seen, the cognized, the heard, the sensed is just this. Just this. No barriers. No references. Just this. Not, I'll meet you at 3 o'clock because me, the situation, and 3 o'clock are all rising at exactly the same moment. Now, there's no ground. Now the cup is empty, and we have no one to turn to. We look for conversation, but we've ended referencing. And conversation can have a sense of connectedness, but when we use it for self-validation, so now we're just quiet. And we feel somehow the richness of the whole, fulfilled, complete, not as a separate thing from that, but the whole moment in completion, in completion, consciousness in completion, not fractured against itself, but in completion, because the moment is complete, consciousness is complete. Not looking outside. And when we look outside, it's because there's an irritant, the boredom, the restlessness, the anger, the grief that is driving the moment to reference. But if I hold the anger, the grief, the restlessness, the boredom, as part of the very fabric of being here present with what is, so that nothing takes me out of the moment whatsoever, even desire, fear. doesn't take me out of the moment at all. 
just going and it's happening right here it's not telling me to go somewhere else it's not telling me to add something new it's happening right here it has no reference in time outside of here because it's happening here it can only be about itself so the desire comes it doesn't have me look or search the filing cabinet of my memories for some improvement it's just this It's just this. You see, now there's nowhere to go. How can, where can we go? Where can we go? When Ramana Maharshi was dying, his students said, oh, Ramana, don't leave us, don't leave us. And Ramana Maharshi said, where can I go? Where can I go? Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.